This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So we're going to talk about credit card debt and how to pay it off. And there are some specific ways to do that. Um, But, gee, you know, it feels like a big, giant thing Mm -hmm. to have to take on because it it doesn't seem like anybody's willing to give breaks on these things. Well, and it's just so easy, Elaine, just to sit into the cycle, slip into the cycle of just pay the minimum each month. No one ever calls you for a delinquent payment. Because it actually tells you on the statement. Yeah, that's all you need to do to tick the box, right? And then you're compliant and your credit rating is usually okay and all that good stuff. But I've had clients tell me, you know, it feels you're pushing a boulder up the hill every month and it just tumbles down against you every month after because the interest just piles on again. So it can feel hopeless if all you're doing is just making minimum payments. Absolutely, because they do tell you too. I mean, that's sort of a new thing, right? Yeah. That the credit card company will tell you how long it will take if you just pay the minimum, mm-hmm. thank you very much, how long it will take to pay off. And just that debt, that yeah. current statement, not the... Uh, not if you continue to use yeah, your Yeah, not card. with any new purchases or right. things like that. So, you know, let, let's go through a couple examples yeah. there just to, to give the listeners a bit of an illustration of, you know, how severe it can be to be in some credit card debt and just be making the minimums. So, you know, let's say it's a $5,000 balance. So it's something probably a lot of folks could relate to, you know, maybe things got out of hand for a few months, there was a vacation overrun or something like that. Well, let's say it's a $5,000 debt and it's on a store credit card. And this is something you wouldn't want to do because, you know, the big retailer credit cards are typically the highest interest rates, you know, at 29. 9% interest rate. If you were just paying the minimum payments on $5,000, Elaine, it would take you 50 years and four months to get out of that debt. That's crazy. 50 years to clear $5,000. Oh. And you know how much you would have paid back by the end of it? I can't imagine. Twenty three, almost $24,000. Oh, so you paid the man. debt four or five times over. You preserve great credit, but at what expense? That $5,000 50 years later, you won't even remember anything about what you had spent that on. And that's only on that one card. And that's, that's right. if you never use it again ever until yeah. Until the end of time. And someone might be saying, okay, well, who's going to put, you know, that much money on a store credit card? Well, clearly some people, because I see them, but that's not your best practice, right? No, it's not. But, but, you know, furniture, if you're buying furniture, sometimes Mm -hmm. you do that at a major retail, uh, like a department store. Oh, yeah. Those can be upwards of 29, 30% easy. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, you know, big purchases. Yeah. Unless you've got the cash on hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's crazy. So let, let's keep at that 5000 and let's yes. say, okay, you know, it's a typical credit card, which is about 18.9% interest, so significantly right. better. Um, you're making your minimum payments. How long do you think it's going to take? It's better than 50 years for sure. Is it? 19 years and nine months. So, (laughs) you know, still, if you were late in your working life, you're ready to retire and you're getting this thing paid off. Um, But yeah, it's it's definitely, it's again, the 20-year plan for 5,000 bucks, even at a reasonable standard credit card interest rate. Um, You know, final example here, and then we'll move on, is let's say you've got a low rate interest card, except people come in and say, oh yeah, this card is great. You know, it's cheaper than the other card. So I put things on it. I carry a balance, but I know I'm not getting that far behind. So a lot of low rate cards might be, you know, 11.9% interest. Same 5,000 bucks. 
15 years. 15 years. So you're still in this cycle for quite a long time. Yeah, very So what I want folks to take away from this is making your minimum payments is not a solution that will ever get you out of debt. It's just a means for you to preserve great credit and pad the bank's bottom line. So what's the first thing you should do if you've got big credit card debt? How do you deal with it? Yeah, so today's segment, I wanted to talk about things people can do that don't necessarily include Sands and Associates, but things anybody could do. So, you know, the first one is just try to negotiate. You know, a lot of people think that just because you got this card and there's a certain rate that's in all the advertisements, that's the best that you can do. It's often not the best that you can do. Really? They will ch- they will lower it? Yeah. Now, it depends on your situation. If you've been delinquent for the last six months and they're calling you all over the place, no chance on that. If you've never missed a payment and you're telling them, you know what, this interest rate's too high, I'm considering taking my business elsewhere for a better deal, generally you'll have a positive conversation and you might end up with some interest rate reduction. Yeah. There's literally no downside to doing this other than your time and perhaps a little bit of embarrassment. We don't like to ask for things in, in life, but this is one of the times where if you don't ask, you'll never get it. Right. So I would say call your bank, call your whatever the credit card company is, and just explain that, yeah, I feel like this interest rate is too high. I would like to know what my options are to lower it. Okay. Now, what are the, uh, there's one more, there's a, two more things or one more thing that you could do as well. When you say that there, if one credit card has a lower interest rate than the other, mm-hmm. you may want to move the money around or the debt around. Yeah. So that can be something to consider too. If you've got a few different cards and one is significantly lower and there's some room on there, you can do a balance transfer. Now, Previously, you know, five, 10 years ago, balance transfers cost you nothing in fees. It was pretty straightforward. Now you've got to be careful. I've seen a lot of card issuers, whatever balance you transfer over, they often take a 1% fee, which doesn't sound like a whole lot, but, uh. you know, it's just cash right off the top just to move the money around. So again, make sure that it's going to pay off in the long term if there are some short-term fees if you move money to a lower interest rate card. Okay, so then what? Then what do you do? Well, so say that you've moved things around as much as you can and your yes. debts are where they are. Um, then you've got to have a bit of a strategy of how are you going to pay pay these debts down. So it's assuming the situation is not so severe that you need the help of a trustee, but you might need just some help to organize things. So one approach that we like to do um, is to pay the highest interest cards first. So the steps you go through here is you'd sit down, you'd list all of your credit cards by interest rate with the highest rates at the top. So obviously, you know, the department store store cards typically would be up there. Sure. You'd look at your monthly budget and you'd figure out how much can you afford to pay beyond the minimum payments. So the minimum payments, that's just going to be a a go-to. You've got to cover that each month or else you're going to be delinquent and we're assuming that you're going to try to pay these all off over time. Okay. But figure out, can I devote an extra $200, $300, $100, whatever it is above and beyond the minimums, figure out what that what that extra pot of money looks like. And then every month, take that extra money and apply it to the highest interest rate card only. So you pay the minimums on all of them, but the one that you're really trying to knock down is the highest interest rate cost. Makes sense. And once that one's gone, you move on to the second one, so on and so forth. And you celebrate every time that you pay a card off. You know, whether you go out, you go for a nice walk, you get yourself a coffee, you know, go (laughs) out and max the cards out. Yeah, (laughs) don't buy anything big. Yeah, but the best things in life don't cost money, so treat yourself to those. Fair enough, fair Mm -hmm. enough. So what about consumption? Consolidating the debt um, as a strategy. Do you do a line of credit or get that consolidation? Yeah, that's what a lot of people really rush to first is, okay, we've got all these debts and a bunch of different cards. Uh, Let's try to simplify our life. Let's put everything together. And ideally, let's get a lower interest rate. And that can really work well for certain people if you can qualify for it. So Mm. the challenge is, 
you know, for a bank to do a consolidation loan, they're essentially going and paying off all of your other debts, paying them off in full, and then expecting you to keep them whole at the end of the day and pay the bank off in full. Right. Now, they're willing to take that risk if you've got something to pledge, if you've got assets, if you've got a house that has a lot of equity, if you've got a bunch of money in the bank. It's quite often it's the people that don't need the bank's help are the people that the bank wants to help the most. Right. Um, but if you're able to qualify for a consolidation loan, the really key important thing is to take those old credit cards and, you know, whether you freeze them, you chop them up, you do something, it's to stop using them. Because I've seen again and again, people come into me, they had the consolidation loan two years ago, they thought they were going to pay everything down. And now they come in to see me, the consolidation loan hasn't moved that much because life intervened. And you know what, the credit cards are back where they were before the consolidation loan, because it was just too tempting to use all this available credit. Or sometimes it's not even it's, it's circumstances. Mm-hmm. And as you say, life happened, like, yeah. and we know that one small thing can really cause big financial financial problems for people. Somebody yeah. gets sick, somebody, you know, whatever. There's a, a hundred different things that can oh, happen. Oh, you're exactly right, Elena. And thank you for making that point too. Yeah. If I say it's too tempting, it's not that it's that, but it it's, can it's, be, for it sure. It can be, but it, it's often the case that, you know, something, a shock to the system happened, but sometimes it's, you know, it's a longer term, it's a budgetary leak. Every month there's a few hundred dollars of overspending that just gets put on credit. And until you address that, um, you're consistently going to have, have a bit of trouble. Okay. So consolidation loan, uh, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get that. What do I do then? Yeah. So if those other options aren't working for you, so you've tried to lower the interest rate by negotiating, you've tried to move balances around to the lowest possible interest rate, you've tried to consolidate and maybe you've been turned down or you've done it and the cards are back where they were, that's when you probably need to reach out to someone like a licensed insolvency trustee to consider a consumer proposal. And anyone that listens to our show on a long-term basis, they'll know exactly what a consumer proposal is. But in a nutshell, a consumer proposal is going to consolidate all the debt, set the interest down to zero. So not 20, not 10, not 15, 0%, and give you the time that you need to repay that reduced balance. So basically reduce the debts to what you can afford, eliminate the interest, and give you a payment plan for the reduced balance. So um, in... Okay, so that makes sense, and and that and that debt isn't just retail credit card stuff too. Mm-hmm. That's everything. That's yeah. as you mentioned, student loans and government stuff. Yeah. Um, what are there any sort of problems that people can run into trying to pay off their credit card debt? Yeah, there, there's a few of them, Elaine. You know, the first one is just what we talked about at the beginning. It's just sure. the idea of just getting caught in the cycle of only making the minimum payments and not seeing the debt go down. Right. So that can just be depressing over time. And, you know, increasingly these minimum payments, you know, if you're not using this card and you're paying it off, you tend to use another card and that one needs another minimum payment. So they tend to snowball over time. See, and that's the point that I would think that to talk to somebody mm-hmm. makes the best sense at that point. Because yeah. obviously there's something that's not quite... I want to say out of whack, but I uh, but that's not the right term. But it, there's an imbalance. Yeah. That's fair. And there could be a number of factors for it. It might have nothing to do with the the individual situation or judgments that they've made. Something just could have happened, but there's an imbalance with their ability to pay off these debts and have a financially successful future and the plan that they're going on now, which is the 50 or 100 year payment plan being stuck in the minimum payment trap. Now, how often do you find that people go into debt to pay off their debt? Very often. And, yeah. and that could be um, uh, from a number of different sources. Yeah. And, and so often, Elaine, it's because that's the easiest thing to do. Sure. So if someone's calling you every month, they're coming through the phone saying you're a horrible person, they're a collection <laughs> agent that needs to be paid, and you know that you can make this go away if you get a cash advance from another card or move a balance over for here or there, you know, why wouldn't you do that to get this person off of your back? 
Yeah. Or if somebody wants to help you, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we've got great people in our in our lives, yeah. and they say, well, listen, uh, why don't I loan you the money? Yeah. And we know that that... Well, quite often, if you do that, you don't deal with the underlying problem. So that's what we really like to do at Sands & Associates, is to really sit down and, and figure out, well, what's causing the debt problem? Is it just a one-time thing that happened, or is there an imbalance on a monthly basis? We need to really work with you on your budget. But if you don't deal with the underlying problem, you just address the symptom, um, it is going to recur again. Yeah. And what about using, if not, well, I guess credit and debt are really the same thing at that mm-hmm. point if you're trying to pay something off. Yeah, that's the almost the number one warning sign. And definitely a number of years ago before, you know, all this minimum payments became more well known, you knew someone was going to have a problem if every month they're using credit to pay credit or using debt to pay debt. But essentially, you know, taking money from one card to pay another and then you clear off some, some room there and then you move it to the other card. Um, you know, sometimes it means taking a payday loan this month just to pay off your minimum payments for the next month. But essentially making your obligation your payments that you have to make, making them with borrowed money, that's one of the number one warning signs that someone's going to have some financial challenges. And I just want to add, you know, my experience of you is that you know that people, for the for like 99% of folks, are just trying to do the best they can. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I... When I came into this this uh, job, I really had no idea. And I thought that, you know, the potential for people abusing their debt would be far greater than what it actually is. Like, I can count in the fingers of one hand with a couple left over the number of people I've seen in 13 years of practice that were clearly out for their own personal benefit, and that was that. Right. Almost everybody else, really good, honest people. They need some compassion, some empathy to help them move forward from their debt situation. So if you're feeling overwhelmed by credit card or other debts, Go to Sands & Associates, meet with Blair, meet with the, the staff at the locations. And the website again is sands-trustee.com. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. The segment's called What You Need to Know Before Co-Signing, and this is such an important segment. Uh, I had no idea when I first started doing this show with Blair about the responsibilities that come automatically when you co-sign. Uh, all in the aid of helping someone out too, mm-hmm. right? It's all in that process. So whether you're considering co-signing on a loan for somebody in your family or taking on joint uh, credit or debt with your spouse, uh, it's important to understand what you're really signing up for. And it's pretty typical because folks do want to help out. Yeah. Like if you're in trouble, I want to give you a hand somehow and maybe this will help if I co-sign. And uh, boy, oh boy, it's a real, it's a real awful pot. Once it's you get it's into a minefield, it. yeah. right? And suddenly what the way I describe it is, you know, you've taken your debt problem and if you get someone to co-sign, you've now enlarged it to include an emotional aspect to it, a relationship aspect to it. So where this often happens, I sometimes see it with young people that come to see me and, you know, a couple of years ago, they had a debt problem. The credit cards got a bit out of hand and they went and got a consolidation loan from the bank and the bank was great. They gave them a consolidation loan, but said, your parents have to co-sign. So what that means is now when they come to see me and I say, okay, you've got this consolidation loan, you haven't been able to pay back, and now there's some extra debt as well, I can help you with all of that. But what's going to happen is the folks that have co-signed that debt for you, the bank's going to come to them for 100% payment. That was the point of that bank getting a co-signer. They have other pockets to dig into. So the person who's in my office who might have a great solution to move forward, a proposal where they might pay back a third of the debt, in their mind, they know, okay, I've got to pay back a third of the debt to everybody. But then the bank of mom and dad, brother, sister, whoever co-signed, that's an obligation, whether emotional or financial, maybe for the rest of their life at that point. So can I continue on with the... With the uh 
a, a proposal, for example, on the stuff that hasn't been co-signed, or no. does everything stop? That's a sad part. So if you do a consumer proposal, everything is done under the Federal Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act, and one of the core principles of the law is that everyone has to be treated fairly. So fairly means that if there's pain, meaning that the creditors aren't going to get back all their money, the way you deal with pain fairly is you share it equally. So everybody gets back 30 cents on the dollar or something like that. The pain's been shared. If you suddenly pick and choose this debt, I'm going to pay back 100 cents on the dollar because it's co-signed by my parents. That's not fair anymore to the other creditors, so you can't do that. Got it. If you're doing a proposal or a bankruptcy, anything you're dealing with a trustee, you absolutely have to deal with all the debts at once, which again, if it's not co-signed, that's fine. But if there is a co-signed debt, that can be very difficult to consider. But let, let's give a little bit of background here on, on co-signing, actually how sure. it works. I think there are some misconceptions. Okay. So the fact is when you co-sign a debt, um, you become equally responsible for repaying 100% of the unpaid balance. So that's important because a lot of people, when they co-sign, they think, okay, well, I'm 50-50 co-sign, you know, my worst exposure, if it's $10,000 co-sign, is 5000 They can only come from my half that I've co-signed. Absolutely not the case. I've never once seen it work that way. It's what's called joint and several liability. So be aware, whatever amount that you co-sign for, you could be held accountable for the 100% of the debt that's outstanding. Okay. And there's another piece to it as well talking about this acceleration clause Mm -hmm. within that. And I've never even heard that term before. Yeah. And I've seen that happen too. So let's say, you know, you're going along, things are fine and the original person is paying on the debt and you co-signed for them. If the original person starts to miss payments or has to do a bankruptcy or proposal in other way defaults on the debt, you know, those monthly payments might've been something that you'd be okay handling. But oftentimes in these loan agreements, there's an acceleration clause, which means the debt is now due and payable in full. They're no longer going to accept monthly payments. So you might have thought when you co-signed, okay, my worst case is 200 bucks a month, I'll have to cover the payments. No, your worst case could be the full amount of the debt outstanding if the original borrower had defaulted. Okay, and that's part of the acceleration clause. Exactly. That, that gets, gets covered there. Yep. So what about parents who are uh, being a primary card holder of a credit card, and then they get another card uh, for, you know, Sally, who's going to university at McGill mm-hmm. in September. How does that work? Yeah, that one is not as clear. And I love on this show, I can usually give very black and white answers. Um, I've seen various scenarios where having a supplementary card, so Sally, for example, um, whatever charges she puts on the card, if it gets paid or not, obviously the parents are responsible for it as the card holder. But if the parents don't pay, Sally, by taking that supplementary card, could be responsible for that credit card balance as well. Oh, that's interesting. So you have to be very careful with supplementary cards look closely closely at the cardholder agreement, what you're signing on for, because sometimes you are, even if you're just getting the card, by using that card, you're agreeing to be responsible for all of the charges on the account and potentially the bank could follow up with you. Now, if it's a parent giving a child, giving a card to the child, typically the parent's going to be in better financial shape than the child, but not always. So just be aware there could be some, uh, a bit of a gray area on if you're using a supplementary card, is that akin to co-signing for the debt? So all of that should be in the 15 pages of information (laughs) on the credit card application. Like your iTunes agreement, the stuff you scroll through and don't read (laughs) it. There are some important things that are in there. Uh, Okay. Again, a better plan typically is just keep things separate. Sally needs a credit card, get a credit card, cash credit card secured or with a very low limit and just keep the account separate. Got it. Uh, That falls under this category of tips for people to be aware of in these uh, situations and things to consider before taking on debt with someone else too. Yeah, what you really want to think is just ask yourself the question, okay, am I prepared to pay this debt in full before you co-sign? And if you are prepared to pay the debt in full, 
then you can co-sign with a clear conscience knowing if that happens, you'll be able to handle it. But if you can't answer that question without, you know, your heart racing, you're starting to sweat saying, oh my God, I, if I was on the hook for this, it would be bad. You should not be co-signing. So I authored a book a number of years ago called When Life Bites You in the Wallet. And I've got a one page graphic on there and very few words that said, when is it wise to co-sign a debt? Almost never is the answer. I've very seen very few examples where co-signing makes a whole lot of sense. Okay. Uh, let's, what else should we talk about? Let's in talk this? about spouses. Okay, spouses, mm-hmm. yeah, because that, yeah, I don't have that situation, but mm-hmm. yeah, a how lot, does that work? Yeah, a lot of people feel that, okay, you marry somebody, you've automatically co-signed for all of their debts. Right. You're responsible for their student loan, you're responsible for their bank loan, their credit card balance, all that. So couple, why don't you just go and consolidate everything together, get a loan from the bank, and then just deal with it all together? Totally false, and often the worst thing you can possibly do, because just because you marry somebody, it actually does nothing for your liability on debt. So if a wife or a husband, let's say the husband has a ton of debt and the wife has zero debt and a whole lot of assets, it would be possible for the husband to deal with all of his debt, you know, do a proposal, make arrangements with his creditors, and the wife's assets wouldn't have to be touched at all. Now, if the couple decides, okay, let's consolidate everything together, well, now suddenly the wife's assets are in play because she's co-signed for everything, and if that debt can't be dealt with, now new assets have been pledged that just weren't available before. So so my advice to married couples um, is, you know, a joint bank account is fine, and that's good for, you know, managing household expenses, but I would always keep your borrowing completely separate. The borrowing separate. Exactly. And, and you actually have to make an effort not to have them separate. If you've started out as two separate entities and then you get married, mm-hmm. in order for those to blend, yeah. you actually have to have intent and oh, sign yeah. documents nothing, to do that. Nothing automatically is going to happen. Again, it's this big myth that, you know, husbands and wives owe for each other. It's absolutely not true. There's no shared credit rating for a couple. Uh, people could be at completely different financial stages and make the right decisions for them without impacting the other person. Interesting. Okay, so special responsibilities when it comes to shared uh, debt between spouses? Are there, other than what we've already talked about, special responsibilities involved? Well, you know, you're responsible for taking on things that you incur together. The last one is, you know, if the marriage were to dissolve, for example, um, and if one partner has incurred a bunch of debt to support the family and the other partner didn't incur that debt, um, but it was basically used for the family, there is the ability for one partner to take legal action against the other and say, hey, you know, this debt should be split. I want you to have to pay back half of my debt. I haven't seen that happen much because, okay. you know, quite often if people are splitting up, there's not a whole lot of assets to be divided and trying to ask someone to pay back half of something that can't be paid back doesn't happen. But in the law, there is the ability for family debts to be split upon divorce or upon dissolution of a marriage. But if you're staying married, family debts are never joint unless you make them so. Make them so. Okay, cool. So if, if this is resonating with you and you want more information or you've got some questions, uh, go to the website first. Check that out. It's just chock-a-block full of good information at sans-trustee.com. If you want to give them a call, set up an appointment, 1-800-661-3030 and get that first free consultation. As well, don't forget, they've got offices all over British Columbia. There's 17 in total, and of course, that includes Vancouver Island as well. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. I'm pretty sure that this is true, that so many people fear bankruptcy is going to mean losing 
everything, like all of your assets. Mm -hmm. But I love this idea that it's different here in this country. Filing a bankruptcy in Canada actually provides protection of your assets. And I think that's just a really great um, sort of turnaround Mm -hmm. of the fear that people have. In actual fact, it's not. It's a protection. Yeah, totally counterintuitive. And it's funny too, Elaine, because I think the first time when I told my parents, okay, I'm going to be starting to work into bankruptcy, personal bankruptcy individuals, they said, but they have no money. How do you ever get paid? And yeah. so there's a lot of, you know, logical assumptions that we make that if you go into bankruptcy, you lose everything, everything gets taken from you, where the opposite is usually more true. Okay, so let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. How does filing a bankruptcy stop creditors from coming after my stuff? Yeah, so where bankruptcy protects you is as soon as you sit down with a trustee and you make an assignment into bankruptcy, there's what's called a stay of proceedings. And that's an important legal term. And what it means is whatever proceedings were happening, meaning you know court actions, collection activities, asset seizures, things like that, they're all stayed, which means they have to stop. Essentially, everything just freezes in place as soon as you file for bankruptcy. So again, if someone has decided to take you to court for a credit card bill, um, and they're on the courthouse steps and you decide to file for bankruptcy, essentially that court proceeding becomes null and void. It's unimportant. They're back on every other path on the same footing as if they hadn't sued you. If you're in a bankruptcy, everything gets dealt with by the trustee. Okay. Now this is a bit of a curveball. Mm-hmm. What if What if some of my stuff has already been taken back? Mm, well, then that depends. So okay. um, it depends on if it was seized under the right security interest. Uh-huh. Um, you know, if you had a vehicle that you couldn't afford and you stopped making the payments on it and they come and take the vehicle from you, it doesn't sound like there's anything improper there. They had the right to come and take the vehicle. You might be able to pay something to redeem it. But usually if it's a vehicle, for example, you are probably underwater on that debt anyway, which means the vehicle might have been worth 5000 and you owed fifteen or 20000 on it. So usually if you let something be seized from you, it might be something you didn't want to get back anyway. Okay. Um, but every situation is a little bit different. Right. But you'll help me navigate that in any event. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And then one other important thing too is, is in a bankruptcy, a bankruptcy will protect you from unsecured creditors. So this is, you know, your credit cards, student loans, income taxes, and things like that. Okay. Um, if your mortgage is going into default, filing a bankruptcy won't stop that because okay. as a secure debt, you've still got to find a way to pay that mortgage or the creditors have the right to, to do something with the house. Okay. Now, quite often, people are behind on their mortgage because they're dealing with all of their other debts. And we're going to talk more about houses as we go through, um, but it's not an automatic thing that you would lose your house in bankruptcy. It's possible, but most people do keep their houses. Okay. So that's an important Yeah, we'll piece. come back to that. Yeah. So bankruptcy stops creditors. Great. Mm-hmm. Then what happens? Well, and bankruptcy actually protects your assets as we talked about because there are provincial laws. And there's a public policy objective here and that the whole point of bankruptcy is to give you a fresh start. So the law says it's a fresh start for the honest but unfortunate person um, that finds themselves in debt. So the whole idea of starting fresh is you need to have something, right? So uh, what type of a situation would it be if suddenly someone's a craftsman and I take all of their tools if they file for bankruptcy? Someone needs to drive for work to work and I take their car if they file for bankruptcy. Doesn't make any sense. Uh, someone saved, you know, 20 years for their retirement. I take all their RRSPs and they file for bankruptcy. Yeah. All you've done is create somebody that's going to be dead in their later years. So I think there's a great number of exemptions, especially in the province of BC, that for most people that I see, it covers all of their assets. So let's go through those in detail here. Yeah. So, so the, the, your household goods and mm-hmm. effects, right? Does that include the house or is that just what's in the house? Just what's in the okay, house. So basically everything that's not nailed down, so okay. to speak. So, you know, your furniture, um, your appliances, your 
your uh, chattels, you know, your different things like that. Clothing is separate, so we'll, we'll oh, okay. talk about that. Uh, but basically anything that's in, that's in your house, um, you're allowed an exemption, and it's up to $4,000. And you might say, well, of course I got more than $4,000 in my house. You just see my insurance declarations and all right. that. And but, what you paid for, and you still you got the bills. It, right? But that's at a replacement cost, and that's not what we care about in a bankruptcy. I care about what could you get if you had a garage sale? You know, if you put this out in your lawn, you might have just bought the couch a year ago for $1,000. We've seen garage sales, I hope, and usually things will go for $25, $50. Exactly. People will bargain down for a dollar to 75 cents. Yeah, just uh, to get it out of exactly. their yard. So I have never had a client who's had more than $4,000 of household goods. Okay. Now, most of the time, if people had, you know, the grand piano or, you know, the Van Gogh on the wall or things like that, those are the first things to get sold if someone's in debt. Right. But basic home furnishings, you know, um, household furniture, personal goods around your house, up to a $4,000 value at a garage sale, and I don't know many $4,000 garage sales. I like that you mentioned a Van Gogh, because if you've got a Van Gogh, you're in pretty good shape. Yeah, you're not my client, typically. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Maybe a print. i got one of those too, but yeah, there you go. that's about it. Yeah. There you go. Okay, so what about your vehicle or equity in your vehicle? Yeah, so a vehicle, it's exempt up to $5,000, and that's either the value of the vehicle if there's no loan against it or the equity. So if you've got a financed vehicle, almost always, as we talked about, there's negative equity, which means you will probably owe more than what the car is worth. And if that's the case, if you file for bankruptcy, you can keep the car if you want to keep making the payments, which many people do want to do that. Or you could decide, hey, I owe more than what this car is worth. I want to return it back to the lender and get myself a different vehicle. That's fine. If you were in a situation where maybe the car is almost paid off, you're allowed the first $5,000 of equity in the vehicle. So what that means is if the car is worth $10,000, there's a loan against it for $3,000. The loan, uh, sorry, the value minus the loan is your equity. So basically you've got a $7,000 net worth in the car. If you were to file for bankruptcy, the first $5,000 is free and clear. After that, you're supposed to pay the difference, the $2,000 to the trustee. Okay. So if an asset is worth more than the exempt value, so let's say those household goods, if you had more than $4,000, if you had $5,000, you'd pay the extra $1,000. Got it. If your vehicle had $7,000 of equity instead of $5,000, you'd pay the extra $2,000. But the vast majority of cases, if someone's got an older vehicle, it's going to be worth less than $5,000. They keep it. They don't have to pay anything for it. And most vehicles that are financed have negative equity, so there's no issue with them. Okay. Now, it's a little bit different if you're behind on your child or spousal support payments for your car. Yeah, they lower that exemption to $2,000 if you are behind if there's a family maintenance enforcement action against you. So that happens rarely, and it's just, again, it's to make people take care of those family type of maintenance debts. They are the most important. And these are provincial laws that are in place to protect you. Yeah, they change province to province, but all through BC, this is what applies. Okay. Home equity. Mm -hmm. How does that work? Yeah, so you're allowed up to $12,000 of equity for anybody on title in the greater Vancouver or Victoria area and $9,000 of equity anywhere else in the province. So this means if you had a house worth, let's say, $500,000, for example, uh, if the mortgage on that was $490,000, you've got $10,000 of equity. If you were to file for bankruptcy, the trustee would look at that and say, well, the first $12,000 is considered exempt, so the trustee would have no claim on that house whatsoever. Okay. If there were two or three people on title, each person is entitled to the $12,000 equity exemption before the trustee has to consider anything about equity in the house. So because I'm not very good at math, I'm mm-hmm. going to ask the question, I've got a $500,000 home, yep. but I owe $400,000 on it yep. still. 
then what? What kind of situation does that put me yeah. in? Yeah. So what you do is you'd sit down with the trustee and you do all this before you filed for bankruptcy because you might want to try a proposal instead, but we'll go we'll go through that. Okay. Um, but we'd look at, we get a market evaluation for the place and assuming it's worth the 500, we get a mortgage statement, assuming that's at 400. So there's $100,000 of notional equity. The courts have given us some methods to calculate what the actual equity would be because we have to consider uh, if you were to sell the place, there'd be some legal costs, there'd be some realtor costs, there'd be GST, um, maybe an appraisal fee, different things like that. Sure. So we take all of those costs off and let's say those might be $20,000, for example. So Easily, we start at right. 500, you know, now we're down to 480 or so. So there's $80,000 of equity. For each person on title, the first $12,000 would be exempt. Anything beyond that, the person would have to arrange to pay that in to the bankruptcy. Okay. Um, or the house could be sold during the bankruptcy and the person would get paid out their $12,000 of equity. Okay. All right. So even if they had a ton of debt, even if they were going to sell the house outside of bankruptcy, let's say there's that $100,000 of equity, Elaine, um, and they have $150,000 of debt, if they sell that house outside of bankruptcy, they got to give all the proceeds to their creditors and they still owe more money, right? If they sell the house in bankruptcy, the trustee pays to them directly $12,000 exemption regardless of the amount of the debt. So they can be so much better off if it was sold in a bankruptcy. And that's, again, the advantage of doing that, of, of doing this work with a licensed insolvency trustee because you can help me figure out all the different possible solutions and the best one to take. Yeah, and I think people have an idea that, you know, trustees are a lot more active in selling houses than we are. Um, I work in the Vancouver and Langley offices primarily, and it's maybe one a year, two a year, and we do a ton of clients through the, or we see a ton of clients through the door. So uh, it's pretty rare that people have to sell a house through bankruptcy. Usually the house is already mortgaged to the hilt. There's very little equity um, or the house has been sold because they're trying to pay their debts already. Got it. Um, Now, RRSPs, and we've mentioned this a number of times Mm -hmm. on the show, it's just so important. Yeah, this word seems to be getting out more and more. So congrats to all our listeners. I'm hearing fewer and fewer people who are coming and saying, hey, I just cashed in my RRSPs to pay debt. Didn't I do a great thing? Mm. No, the answer is your RRSP is 100% protected for anything that's been there that more than, more than 12 months. It's only your last 12 month of contributions could ever be at risk if you filed the bankruptcy. Otherwise, what you have in RRSPs, you'll emerge after the bankruptcy with all of that intact. Good. Uh, clothing and medical stuff. Yeah. AIDS, I guess. Yes, yeah, so we were talking about, you know, your furniture and clothing and things like that. So where furniture has a bit of a limitation, uh, clothing, there's no limitation. Whatever mm. you have and whatever you need for a medical condition, if it could be a wheelchair, a CPAP, a special van, things like that, um, those could be of an unlimited value as well. Okay. Work tools, really mm-hmm. important that they that I don't lose those. Yeah, the whole point is that you can recover and start to earn income as well. So you're allowed up to $10,000 of tools of the trade. And again, that's actually kind of a Craigslist value. What could you sell these tools for not? What would you have to rec- uh, repay them? And that's an important part uh, part of that to remember. Mm-hmm. So uh, anything else you want to mention with these things? I know that uh, that the assets are sometimes worth more than the allowances, yeah. but to to sit down with you and figure that out, I think is that is the key message, right? Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right, Elaine. So everyone's situation, especially when they have assets, that's what they're most concerned about is, you know, what's going to happen to them. And we'll be as crystal clear as we can, show you how the law will apply. A couple key questions that I get, you know, one of them um, is what happens to your mortgage if you're in bankruptcy? So let's say you're in that situation where the house is worth 500, the mortgage is 490. So the trustee is taking no action against the house because there's less than the exempt amount of equity. Right. Um, you know, you filing for bankruptcy, 
does not automatically mean that the bank's going to call your mortgage. Almost everyone that I've seen, I'm trying to think of any, I have not seen a single case where someone was forced out of their house just because they filed for bankruptcy. If you're up to date on your mortgage, um, you know, even renewing the mortgage, typically even if you're within a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal, I wouldn't be renegotiating things, but if you sign the renewal notice and send it back, most banks don't even do a credit check when you're renewing mortgages. So typically, as long as you pay the mortgage, even if you're in a bankruptcy, you won't be forced out of the house. No, and, and if your head is just swimming with all this information, mm-hmm. and it's a lot of information that we've covered in the last, what is it, 10 minutes or so, um, the best thing is to come and see you and sit mm-hmm. down and say, this is my situation, uh, have as much information as possible for you. Yeah, we've got 16 offices in the province. You know, the more information that you can bring in, the more you know, more specific um, advice we can give to you, or even just give a call, ask a few questions. I spend a lot of time on the phone just answering basic questions and giving people some guidance. Uh, it's really the free consultation is really where we're able to add the most value. So we encourage clients to come in and meet with us. And if you are hesitating to take that first step, check out their website, sands-trustee.com. And I only mention it because it's so thorough. There's so many questions and answers. It's such a good resource. And the best bet, of course, is to give them a call, 1-800-661-3030 for that first meeting and to find an office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So we talk a lot about the the things that Sands & Associates does. And there's two besides the counseling and Mm -hmm. the the help and the answering of the questions and sort of just giving folks a hand with a debt situation or a possible debt situation even. Um, One of the things that we've that I learned about for the very first time when we first started doing this show was a consumer proposal. Mm-hmm. I never heard the term before. I had no idea what it was. And I think we can just assume that that's kind of the case for lots of people. Yeah. Unless they're in this business, uh, you wouldn't necessarily know. Absolutely, Elaine. So I, I only half in jest say that my life's work is to try to make people aware of consumer proposals. It's the best debt solution that most people have never heard of. You know, I went to business school. I worked at a big accounting firm for a number of years. I I had never even heard of a consumer proposal until I came across it in an industry magazine. And I thought, wow, how does this exist? And I don't know about it. So the average person, especially if they're struggling with debt, collection agents aren't going to tell you, your banker's not going to tell you, even well-meaning friends and family members, they might not even know that this is a good option for you to help you move forward. Okay. So let's talk about sort of the real guts of it. What is a consumer proposal? Yeah. So a consumer proposal is essentially a deal. It's a federally regulated deal that you work out with your creditors through a trustee where you agree to repay not the full amount of the debt and you agree to repay zero interest, you agree to repay what you can afford on your debts. So in many situations, you're repaying somewhere between 20 to 50% of the amounts outstanding and it's all legally supervised by a trustee. It's monthly payments over a period of time. So for example, if someone owed about $20,000, they might offer a consumer proposal to repay 30% of that total amount, so about $6,000, and they might decide to split that over monthly payments of 36 over 36 months of about $165. The balance of the debt, about 70%, is written off as part of the consumer proposal. So once this proposal is legally binding and accepted by creditors, once the person performs it by making all the payments and attending two financial counseling sessions, the balance of the debt is written off. It can never again be collected from the person. So 
it's um, it, it just is, is such a great solution for folks because it isn't a bankruptcy and not mm-hmm. that we're playing into the fear mm-hmm. around the term bankruptcy, but yep. it's it's a way that your assets aren't impacted either. Exactly. Significantly, right? Yeah. So it's meant to be the alternative to bankruptcy. So if things are so horrible, you know, you owe a million dollars, well, offering back 20 or 30% of a million dollars, that's pretty tough for just about anybody, certainly clients that come through the door at Sands and Associates. So in those cases, bankruptcy is pretty well a foregone conclusion. But a consumer proposal was designed to help people where things aren't so dire, where maybe it's in the range of the $20,000 debt I mentioned, or maybe it's 40 or 60, it's all the way up to $250,000 of debt is where a consumer proposal can work to reduce, to consolidate, and to give you the protection that you need because everyone knows, or I think most people know, if you file for bankruptcy, you get relief. Nobody can call you, harass you, take you to court, seize any of your assets. What a lot of people don't know is that a consumer proposal is exactly the same protection. So even though you're making a reasonable repayment amount, you still get that same protection as if you had declared bankruptcy. So who are consumer proposals really for? Is there sort of a a general description of of who that person is? Yeah, well, in the law, the eligibility is the same as bankruptcy, so you have to owe more than $1,000, and in this case, you have to owe less than $250,000, excluding the mortgage on your principal residence, which obviously in Vancouver, that would disqualify anybody unless we made that exclusion, it seems. Yeah. Um, But yeah, unsecured consumer debt, so things like credit cards, student loans, um, income taxes, lines of credit, bank loans, personal loans, any debt like that uh, can be consolidated and reduced as part of a consumer proposal. Uh, A consumer proposal can be done by a couple as a joint proposal. If it's a married couple or even not married, if they've got a bunch of debts that are similar, both can file a consumer proposal, a joint proposal to deal with the debts collectively there as well. Okay, and is it worth mentioning the fact that just because the husband or or the one one person of the partnership has entered into a consumer proposal agreement that that impacts the other person who mm-hmm. hasn't? That's a great point to mention, Elaine. It absolutely does not impact the other person. So uh, quite often, married couples or couples who are considering getting married come to see me, and they say, okay, if you know husband or wife has the debt problem, if they deal with it through a proposal or even a bankruptcy, how will it impact the other spouse? And the answer is zero impact. It will not impact the credit rating of the person not doing the filing at all. Good. I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I just think that's important because sometimes you think automatically you're bunched in uh, by a marriage or, yeah, I mean, I guess marriage is the only the only thing that's similar. Mm-hmm. Um, the other key thing to remember is that not just anybody can help you file a consumer exactly. proposal. Exactly. Yeah. All, it's a very small group of people that can help you with a proposal. It's a licensed insolvency trustee full stop. So a bank can't help you with a consumer proposal. A lawyer can't help you with a consumer proposal. A credit counselor or a debt consultant, again, they might try to give you advice, but taking advice about something from someone who can't actually do the work, uh, you're on a pretty shaky ground is what I would say. So definitely you need to come to the source to do a consumer proposal, which is a licensed insolvency trustee. But even to find out about a consumer proposal, it costs you nothing to go and visit a trustee to have a free consultation to start to explore the issue. So people getting their information directly from a trustee is definitely better than the alternative of doing their own very detailed online research. And there's lots of good sites that are out there, but there's also a lot of misinformation too. Okay. So can you walk us through how does a consumer proposal work? Yeah. So there's about four main steps and it's relatively straightforward. So first and often the most difficult is you need to pick up the phone and give a call into Sands and Associates and just say, you know what, I'm having trouble with my debts. I need to sit down with somebody. So it's a free, no obligation conversation. It's confidential. We review your entire financial 
financial situation uh, and you leave the meeting knowing what your options are and how you can move forward. Um, your income, your family size, the amount of debt, the assets that you carry, all of those things will be taken into account when you sit down for a meeting. Um, and that's when you'll basically make your decision after you've left that meeting of, okay, is this something that fits for me? Do I need more information? Maybe you'll have a couple of discussions with the trustee. And then once you're ready to decide, step two of the process starts. And and it's a, and it is a formal process in that mm-hmm. documents get signed and yeah. agreements are made and you're on your way. Yeah. So this this proposal isn't something that, hey, creditors can just, you know, throw into the waste bin as crosses their desk and just continue to go on their merry way. No, when you file a consumer proposal, and that's step two is after you've met with the trustee and we figured out what the strategy is, step two is you'd come in and you'd sign the consumer proposal documents. What happens from there is immediately you are protected. So immediately no one can call you, harass you, take you to court or do anything to collect these debts. Everyone's got to deal with the trustee. And the way a proposal works um, is that your creditors have to vote to accept it. Now, what's great is that not everybody needs to agree. So if someone owed $20,000, all I need is half of the debt by dollar value to say yes on the proposal. So even if it was the government that's owed a $5,000 tax debt, but the rest of the creditors want to say yes to the proposal and they've got $15,000 of the debt, the government is forced to abide by the terms of the proposal. And that goes for any creditor. So creditors are required to abide by the terms of the proposal once it's accepted by everyone. Okay, so let's keep moving through the process. What's next? Well, next is once the proposal is accepted, well, that's when the individual has the work to do, which is make the payments each month. So quite often, this is a new world for an individual because if they were carrying something like $20,000 of debt, they were probably paying, you know, five to $800 of minimum payments per month and not getting ahead. In that situation, their consumer proposal payment is $165, so a lot less, and it's over in three years. So as opposed to the never-never plan, they've got a definite time when they know this proposal is going to be finished. So what the individual has to do is just make sure the money's in the account every month, we withdraw the payments monthly, and they have to attend two counseling sessions where we talk to you about credit rebuilding, life after the proposal, how you move forward with good financial habits. Cool. And um, I know that somebody might be thinking this when they're hearing about a consumer proposal and it's connected with Sands and Associates. How do you guys get paid? Mm-hmm. How does Sands get paid? No, and that's a great question. So, you know, I often have people wondering, okay, now I've signed the proposal. Uh, when do I pay you? When do I get this invoice? And yeah. I like those conversations because I say, well, the creditors essentially pay me. So what happens when you do a consumer proposal is first off, you never pay a dime or a dollar until you've sat down and you've signed the documents. So if you need to meet with the trustee a number of times to figure out that this is right for you or not, those meetings are all at no charge. Once you sign the proposal, the government has a tariff that says exactly how much the trustee is entitled to retain out of what you're offering to repay. So in the situation, if you were offering $6,000 back on a $20,000 debt, that's 30% of the debt, the trustee would get a portion of that and the balance would go to the creditors. There's no extra charge to the individual, no separate trustee fee is ever charged. So it's, uh, it's built into my repayment plan. It's built in, exactly. All right. If any of this information is ringing a bell's for you. I can't stress enough how great the Sands and Associates website is. It is full of questions that you may have and great answers. Uh, It's literally a network of offices throughout British Columbia, which is great. So call Sands and Associates. I'll give you their toll-free number at 1-800-661-3030 or visit the website sands-trustee.com. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.